ratcheted up his warnings to NATO and the U.S., saying if anyone creates a no-fly zone over Ukraine, they will be considered part of this conflict. The U.S. is now advising all Americans to leave Russia, while Moscow sent in this plane to evacuate its diplomats from Washington. But perhaps the most jarring development of the day happened here in the southeastern city of Mariupol, a population of nearly half a million people, almost as many as Atlanta. It is under brutal assault by Russia. Today, a temporary ceasefire was declared, and then it was broken. We have all of this covered for you tonight, and we begin with Matt Bradley inside Ukraine. Tonight in Ukraine, peace never had a chance. Overnight, Russians and Ukrainians agreeing to a partial ceasefire, allowing civilians in the devastated city of Mariupol to flee. But just hours later, preparing to leave, the Russians started shelling the evacuation corridor, said the mayor. There was no ceasefire. Russia said it was the Ukrainians who broke the deal. Ukrainian President Zelensky calling his citizens to go on the offensive. This woman's 18-month-old son was killed yesterday. But doctors couldn't save him, she wailed, asking over and over again, why? People in this town have suffered days without heat, water, and electricity. And face devastating Russian bombardments on civilian targets, according to Ukraine, a charge Russia denies. Outgunned and outmanned, the Ukrainians are still fighting 10 days into Russia's invasion, taking down a Russian helicopter and shooting down a Russian jet north of Kyiv, killing one of its pilots. Russia's sprawling 40-mile convoy of armored vehicles failing to advance, still stalled outside Kyiv for nearly a week. As civilians in the capital overcome obstacles like this destroyed bridge to get to safety. Zelensky admonishing NATO for not implementing a flight ban. Starting from today, everyone who dies will die because of you as well, he said, because of your weakness, because of your disunity. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken warning a no-fly zone could put NATO forces in direct conflict with Russia. But Russia's president is doubling down, telling flight attendants for the state airline that a no-fly zone and Western sanctions are a declaration of war. Any move in that direction will be considered by us as participation of that country in the military action, he said. Ukraine must be demilitarized and denazified, he said. That's the only message most Russians will hear about Putin's war. The harsh new media law comes into effect today, imposing a 15-year punishment on whoever spreads so-called fake news about the invasion. Independent media outlets are closing and being shut down. Staff at the Russian network TV Rain walked off set in unison during their last broadcast, leaving viewers old footage of Swan Lake, what the Soviet Union used to broadcast during times of strife. A chilling reminder of how Putin's new Russia is looking more like the old. Matt Bradley joins us tonight from Rivne. There is concern, Matt, about another nuclear plant tonight. That's right, Jose. After that close call with a nuclear power plant on Thursday night, President Zelensky warned U.S. lawmakers the Russians are now closing in on yet another nuclear power plant, this one a little further to the west. Jose? Matt Bradley in Ukraine. Thank you. If Mariupol was the focus of Russia's attacks today, some 250 miles to the west in Kyrgyzstan get fired by Ukrainians. The city of about 290,000 was the first to fall to Russia and is now under its control. But the people there risked their lives today to take to the streets. Aaron
rocket has fallen from inside Ukraine. In Kherson, Ukraine, defiance. Residents woke up under Russian occupation and took to the streets. Go home. There's no vodka here, this man says. Remember, Kherson is Ukraine. They first gathered by the hundreds, and as word spread, thousands. Lashing out against a Russian occupier. Then gunshots. Russian troops firing into the air. This woman, draped in her country's colors, comes firm. We are not afraid. We are together, she says. Similar scenes in the nearby town of Melitopol, also now occupied by Russian forces. A crowd of angry people bearing down on armed Russian troops. Earlier this week in Kherson, the Russian military invaded this port city, soon overwhelming Ukrainian forces. From the outset, the people resisted, covertly filming from their windows, even going toe-to-toe -to -toe with a Russian soldier. You are occupiers. You are fascists, she says. The city's new rules posted on the mayor's Facebook, including a strict curfew. A maximum of two people allowed on the streets together at any time. We are not following the Russian instructions uh, properly. We are a free people, even under an invasion. Fearing Russian reprisal, this Kherson resident only wants to be known as Jimmy. Protecting the building. He says he's dedicated to documenting the occupation, covertly filming what's happening in the streets. You're the first city to fall to Russian forces in Ukraine. What example are you setting? We have no other way to escape this situation. We can't uh, evacuate. We are fighting from within. Without their hands, with no weapons, with uh, phones in our hands, and with our flags. In Kherson, as elsewhere, Russian firepower being confronted by the Ukrainian spirit. Aaron McLaughlin, NBC News, Lviv, Ukraine. As the Russian onslaught intensifies, more Ukrainians are fleeing for their lives. This week, we've shown you the desperate race to get to trains and out of places like Kiev. Many are now arriving across the border in Poland, an overwhelming number of them for children. Kelly Kobieja is there. Tonight, thousands more children are far from home, fleeing by train, bus, on foot. Some too young to understand, leaving fathers and grandfathers behind. More than 600,000 children already displaced by war. Oksana's 14-year-old son was living with family in Ukraine while she worked in Poland. The family now reunited. It was really bad there, her son says. Everyone wants to get their child out if they can, Oksana tells me. U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited the Polish-Ukrainian border today, meeting with refugees at an abandoned shopping mall now turned refugee center. The number of mothers and children in shelters now skyrocketing. I'm really grateful to be in Poland, his miller tells me, because my children can be children a little while longer. Across Ukraine's border, a vast volunteer army is providing food and comfort, handing out toys in Poland. Throwing a surprise birthday party for a six-year-old refugee in Romania. And helping more than a hundred orphans flee Ukraine through Moldova, all of them now safe in Germany. Refugees often exhausted and traumatized by what they left behind. I've heard pistol firing and explosions, 11-year-old Christina told me. I was really scared, and in the morning, my mom said, please pack, we have to leave. In Ukraine, the first shipment of aid from UNICEF finally getting through, medical supplies and first aid kits, with 17,000 blankets on the way. On the border, there's no end to the flow of refugees, already more than 1.4 million escaping the war.
So what will you do long term? Uh, I don't know. I, I just uh, wanted to, uh, to escape, to, to help my kids. Uh, that's why. And uh, now I don't know. I feel uh, in my kids are in safe. Anastasia and her two-year-old son, Sergei, fled Odessa. The city now braced for a Russian attack. For the war to stop, she tells me, so we can go home. Matt Kelly joins us across the border in Poland, where volunteers, Kelly, have been working around the clock to help refugees coming in. That's right, Jose, but some of those volunteer groups now say they are overwhelmed and they need more government help. Jose? Kelly Kobieya, thank you. Today, Ukraine's President Zelensky used a video call to make a direct appeal to the U.S. Congress for more aid. Senior White House correspondent Kelly O'Donnell joins me with more about this unusual meeting. Well, Jose, it was about 300 lawmakers from the Senate and House who dialed in. And sources I spoke to called President Zelensky's account gripping and powerful as he described attacks on civilians. Lawmakers posted images taken during the video call as Zelensky asked for help to secure the skies, including aircraft that Ukrainian pilots are trained to fly. So that means MiGs, which Poland has and the U.S. could help to negotiate. Zelensky urged the U.S. to stop buying Russian oil and to block the use of Visa and MasterCard in Russia. And late today, both companies announced they are suspending service there. After nearly an hour, dozens of lawmakers unmuted, speaking up together to promise more help. And the White House has urged them to approve another $10 billion in aid. Jose? Kelly O'Donnell at the White House, thank you. If the U.S. and allies were to stop buying Russian oil and gas, as President Zelensky is requesting, prices would go up. But they're already nearing record highs. So would you be willing to pay more at the pump to punish Russia? Scotty Schwartz has more. At gas stations across the country, prices are shooting up higher and faster than they have in more than a decade. Breaking records in California, $5, $6, premium as high as a jaw-dropping $7.55. Pickle shot? <laughs> Wonder what's next. You know, if it's going to be 7 now, it's going to be 9 pretty soon. The national average now hovering just under $4 a gallon. The spike, part of a global ripple effect stemming from war, with a price hike every single day since Russian forces invaded Ukraine, up a total of 38 cents here in the U.S., expected to go even higher as energy giants turn their backs on Russian oil. How much higher can prices go here? Well, I think it's certainly within the realm of possibility that here very quickly in the next 72 hours we can see the national average breaking its all-time record high. So far, U.S. sanctions have carefully avoided directly targeting Russian crude oil exports, fearing a global energy crunch. But in Washington, there are calls for a full embargo, backed by a recent poll that found 80% of Americans support an all-out ban on Russian oil. Are you willing to pay more for gas if it meant more restrictions on Russia? Uh, personally, yeah, I probably would, honestly. It's, uh, I feel like it's just a little price that I need to pay. I would rather support Ukraine in whatever we can. If that means gas prices hike up, like, I would, I would pay it. Experts say whatever the outcome, expect to see higher prices well beyond the pump. Anything that touches a truck, commerce, deliveries, groceries, lumber, going to the store, anything that is being shipped via semi-truck is eventually going to get hit. Scotty, just look at those prices behind you. How much could this end up costing families here in the U.S.? Yeah, 
I'll say just seeing these prices is mind-boggling, and hopefully people will be able to find cheaper prices. But experts say the way things are going, the average American family may be spending $1,000 more in gas than they did last year. Okay. Gun Schwartz in Los Angeles, thank you. When we come back, Americans are risking it all and volunteering to go fight for Ukraine. We'll talk to some. Also, the skyrocketing costs of spring getaways. What you need to know before booking that trip. Cantor Audio, a division of recorded books presented. Cantor Audio, a division of recorded books presents Ukraine's Maidan, Russia's War, a chronicle and analysis of the Revolution of Dignity by Mikhailo Vinitsky, narrated by David Stifle. Forward, making the revolution happen. Nothing has really happened until it has been described goes by far the best-known quotation lifted from the writings of Virginia Woolf. Mikhailo Vinitsky has taken up the task of ensuring that the Ukrainian revolution, known as the Revolution of Dignity, or Euromaidan, has indeed taken place. An active participant in the Maidan protests of late 2013 and early 2014, he began describing them at first in real time through his insightful posts on Facebook and has continued to do so in this book, which combines an eyewitness account of events with the interpretation of a Western-educated social scientist. Mikhailo Vinitsky has impeccable credentials as both an activist and a scholarly analyst that go beyond his participation in the first stage of the revolutionary protests and commentary on them. His career as an activist began early. On one occasion, as an undergraduate student from Canada, taking part in an exchange with the University of Dnipropetrovsk during the final months of the Soviet Union, he attached the blue and yellow Ukrainian national flag to his dormitory window the first public display of the Ukrainian national symbol in a city that would not fully shed its Soviet legacy on the symbolic level until a quarter century later. As a consequence of the revolution of dignity, the city adopted a shorter form of its name, Dnipro, in 2016, to remove a reference to the Ukrainian communist leader, Grigory Petrovsky and the name of the Dnipropetrovsk region was changed to Sichislav in 2019 to reflect its Cossack past. This revolutionary, in terms of the symbolic meaning of the name's change, required a lot of time, a point that Vinitsky, as an analyst and scholar, raises in his account of the revolution of dignity. Apart from undergraduate studies in Canada, and a short stint as an exchange student in Ukraine. His academic background includes two degrees from Cambridge University. First, an MPhil in the Sociology and Politics of Modern Societies, and second, a 
Ph.D. in economic sociology, as well as teaching at the KF Mohila University in Ukraine, where Vinitsky moved in 2003. A regular contributor to the KF Post and other Ukraine-based media outlets, in this book he offers a unique perspective on the revolutionary events in which he took part. As an activist and commentator, the author comes to the fore in the first part of the book, which is essentially an eyewitness account of events leading from the KF Maidan of 2013 to its political victory in February 2014. This resulted in the ouster of President Viktor Yanukovych in the wake of the mass killings of protesters, followed by the Russian invasion and annexation of the Crimea, and the subsequent destabilization and invasion of the Donbass, which led to the protracted and ongoing war in the region. Vinitsky allows us to hear the voices of the revolution as he quotes his own Facebook posts and those of his friends and acquaintances. The posts are embedded in the author's reconstruction of events as they took shape on both sides of the revolutionary divide. Vinitsky never fails to indicate on whose side he was and continues to be, the side of the revolution. He is still engaged in the information war that began in 2013, rejecting the argument that Russian aggression against Ukraine was provoked or caused by NATO encirclement and the portrayal of Ukrainians as mere victims of the geopolitical struggles of others. He stresses the local roots of Ukrainian developments and the agendas of their participants, debunking the notion that most of the protesters were ideological nationalists, making sense of the events of the Revolution of Dignity, rather than recounting and commenting on them, is the main task of the second part of the book. The key question raised there is whether the Maidan and its consequences qualify as a revolution. Since the author answers in the affirmative, there follows a new set of questions focused on defining the kind of revolution it was. In both parts of the book, Vinitsky focuses attention on the local agents of revolutionary change, discussing the broader significance of their actions and analyzing them with the assistance of key Western texts on the essence and variety of revolutions. Like many books written in the previous century about the phenomenon of revolution, especially in Ukraine, this book begins with a quotation from Vladimir Lenin. But unlike books that became prominent during the rise of the Soviet Union and the Cold War, whose authors attempted to develop the ideas of the father of the Russian Revolution or draw on them to legitimize their own views. This one rejects Lenin's authority and seeks to chart a new course. If for Lenin, the revolution was first and foremost about class struggle and changes in political structure, for Vinitsky, it is about new ideas brought to life by revolutionary change. His main authority in that regard is not Theda Skotchpol, with her focus on the transformation of societal and class structures, but Hannah Arendt, with her emphasis on the importance of ideas that lead to revolution and are further shaped by it. Vinitsky embraces Arendt's definition of revolution as a violent act in which the participants are driven by the pathos of novelty. 
He is no supporter of violent methods of revolutionary struggle, considering them tragic and highly undesirable agents of change. This is apparent from his account of events on the Maidan and his highly emotional description of his children's classmates, some of whose parents laid down their lives in the ensuing war. But he welcomes other markers of revolution identified by Arendt, as he recognizes them in the Ukrainian events, especially the desire to constitute an altogether different form of government to bring about the formation of a new body politic where the liberation from oppression aims at least at the constitution of freedom. Vinitsky asserts that the revolution is in the process of realizing those goals. The events on the Maidan were only the beginning. The author regards the revolution of dignity as three revolutions in one. National, bourgeois in terms of changes to the economic and social order, and conceptual or personalistic. Unlike Volodymyr Vinichenko, a leader of the Ukrainian revolution of 1917, who wrote of his own experience as a rebirth of the nation, Vinitsky, an activist of a leaderless revolution, is ambiguous in defining the momentous upheaval on the Maidan, referring to it as a birth and rebirth. As he sees it, the revolution resulted from a protracted and regionally based process of Ukrainian nation building. The new Ukrainian nation, as he describes it, is multi-ethnic and multilingual, not unlike the class of the Kiev school that his children attend. The national solidarity produced by the events on the Maidan makes the Ukrainian revolution comparable to the American revolution and helps explain why the upheaval of 2014 was not followed by a reign of terror, which another theorist, Crane Brinton, identified as a marker of true revolution. If there is an aspect of Vinitsky's analysis that draws on Skutchpol's thinking and puts one in mind of Lenin, it is his definition of the Ukrainian revolution as bourgeois. He notes the major role of the Ukrainian entrepreneurial class, which rebelled against the neo-feudal post-Soviet model of political rule embodied in the increasingly authoritarian regime of Viktor Yanukovych. In that regard, Vinitsky sees Ukrainians not only following in the footsteps of the great revolutions of the past, but also making a new contribution. He argues that the revolution promises to deliver a type of economic and social liberalism that never gained a foothold in Europe because of the dominance of socialist ideas. Once again, he draws a parallel with the American Revolution, which, like the Ukrainian one, took place on the geographic periphery of the Western world and produced novel ideas that went on to change its center. The third aspect of the revolution inspired by the Maidan, in Vinitsky's opinion, has little or nothing in common with the major historical revolutions. It is associated with the particular Ukrainian understanding of the term dignity, idnis, which unlike the English or French notion of dignity, is not rooted in the idea of equalizing individuals of diverse social rank, but in a person's comprehension of their civic worth and civic responsibility. For Vinitsky, 
This is a sign of the arrival on the European scene of personalism, which he defines as a worldview that emphasizes the centrality of the socially embedded person. By placing personalism rather than individualism at the center of its discourse, the Ukrainian revolution, argues Vinitsky, has not only distanced itself from Enlightenment-era revolutions with their individualistic values, but also introduced new values to the world it is striving to change. Vinitsky argues that the revolution of dignity opens the door to a new set of ideas that will change the world and should therefore be treated on par with the American, French, and Russian revolutions. He contrasts the ideas and values promoted by the revolution of dignity with those declared officially by the European Union. If the EU seeks to de-emphasize the significance of nations and national sovereignty, the revolution of dignity embraces them. It counters the EU orientation towards social democratic models of economic order with a program of economic liberalism and European individualism with its own personalistic understanding of dignity. There are various ways to interpret the features of the Ukrainian revolution, as identified and discussed in this book. A conventional response in the Orientalist tradition would be that Ukraine is simply lagging behind and trying to catch up with Western and Central Europe, whose national and bourgeois revolutions were completed long ago. From this viewpoint, the postmodern aspiration to outdo the old European revolutions merely puts a brave face on Ukraine's pre-modern identity, which prevents it from shaking off its traditional collectivism and embracing the individualism that made Europe so successful. The importance of this book lies in its rejection of such conventional thinking and its search for different ways of explaining the non-European features of the pro-European revolution in Ukraine. Vinitsky's emphasis on the novelty of its ideas corresponds to the pathos of novelty that Hannah Arendt identified as an indicator of true revolution. A revolution in the making, at least, as the revolution of dignity has yet to deliver on its promises. But then, if one trusts Virginia Woolf, nothing happens until it is described. Hence, writing about the revolution is akin to making it. And this book is part of that multifaceted process. Serhi Plachy, Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Preface. Our family's apartment is located two subway stops from Kiev's Independence Square, Maidan Nezolezhnostia, the epicenter of Ukraine's revolution. For me, as for most of the 43 million residents of Europe's largest country, in terms of landmass, the three-month period between the 21st of November 2013 and the 22nd of February 2014 represented a roller coaster ride of euphoria and trauma. Individually, we experienced the essence of what it means to be human. Dignity, self-sacrifice, pride, fear, sorrow, joy, communion. Collectively, we experienced a people becoming a nation. 
between the Russian invasion of Crimea and the war in the Donbass. Although geographically removed, Kiev is approximately 700 kilometers from Donetsk. The violence touched our family directly. Children of so-called internally displaced people became classmates of our kids. Over 1.4 million IDPs were registered by Ukrainian authorities in 2015, and several of my friends and students volunteered to fight. Many returned from the war with limbs severed and or psyches wounded irreparably. Throughout the three months of the Maidan protests, I posted regularly to Facebook and to an email distribution list. Several of my thoughts from Kiev were subsequently published, trying to provide the English-speaking world with on-the-ground analysis of the situation in this seemingly forgotten European nation. On the night of February 18th, during what seemed the darkest period of the previous three months, I wrote the following as a status post. Feeling very sad and incredibly angry. My city burns tonight. The capital of the country that I love, my adopted home and the land of my ancestors, today lost any sense of innocence that may have been left here. Tonight, the center of chaos has become a war zone. This place of peace, of multiple languages and religions, of intellectual vibrancy, of tolerance and mutual understanding, today is drenched in the blood of protesters whose only demand was to be led by a just and non-corrupt government. As I write these words, the church tent on the Maidan where I have prayed for peace countless times during the past two months burns set on fire by riot police. Don't look for logic behind such an act. There is no logic that can explain the work of thugs taking orders from an uber thug desperately holding on to power. So far, we know of 10 confirmed deaths today, in addition to the five who died in January's clashes on Horashevskoho Street, and hundreds injured. Tonight we cry, we mourn those who innocently believed freedom could be won peacefully. Tomorrow we'll regroup. There will be no more false beliefs. There will be no more negotiations. There is nothing to talk about. Tomorrow we'll take back our city, and the day after we'll take back our country. There is no way that a few thousand riot police can hold back millions. God help them if they try. To all my friends throughout the world, I ask for your prayers for those who lost their lives today and for those whose lives will be lost in the coming days. Pray for those who are sped away in ambulances outside our windows. May their wounds heal quickly. Pray for the heroes who are desperately trying to stop the inevitable advance on my dawn tonight. They face thugs in police uniforms armed with live rounds. Many will not return home tomorrow. My world turned black and white today. There is no gray. Academic impartiality be damned. Evil must be stopped. At the time, I was expressing the emotions of many who had attempted to conjoin activism with commentary. We were experiencing history firsthand. 
and the status of bystander was simply not appealing. The text came easily and quickly. Tears flowed as I typed. The next morning I ventured into the center of Gaif and spent several hours on the burnt-out Maidan. I tried to support the protesters as much as I could, but I understood that my role was to chronicle their brave actions and to relay their monumental task to the world. When the chaos phase of Maidan ended and the Russian invasion of Ukraine began, I continued in this role, traveling to the Donbass several times, although never actually summoning the courage to get closer than 15 kilometers to the front line. Two years after the climax of the protests in Kiev, I wrote the following. February 19th is a very emotional day for me. Two years ago on this day, less than three meters from where I stood, a man was shot by a barefoot officer. We were on the burnt-out Maidan in Kiev, unaware that within a few days all this would be over and the next violent chapter in Ukraine's modern history would begin. One year ago, our family sat glued to the television screen. We watched thousands of men from Ukraine's army and volunteer battalions retreat from the northern Donbass city of Debaltseva. Within the paradigm of war, where every millimeter of territory gained or lost counts, this looked like a defeat. We now know that Putin's victory was short-lived. Notwithstanding, repeated attempts to move his forces further into the country, the line drawn by Ukraine's troops after their withdrawal from Debaltseva has become the effective new border with Russia's proxy republics in the Donbass. And the line has remained unchanged for a year. Today was another day of emotions. I attended a commemorative ceremony at our children's school in the Podil region of Kiev. Two years ago, Alexander Sashko Plekhanov, a young architecture student who had graduated from our school just four years before, was shot dead by a sniper in the center of Kiev. He was, is, always will be one of the Heaven's Hundred. A stone plaque with his image was erected last year in the vestibule of the school, and photographs from his childhood in various classes and in the schoolyard hang near the entrance. Today, the school remembered its former student with flowers, a solemn candle, and a brief student-led ritual. The ceremony was organized by our son's teacher, grade 7. His class is typical of any class in Kiev. There's Sofia, whose grandmother still lives in Slovenyansk, Donetsk Oblast, who retold stories that Babushka tells her of how Ukrainian soldiers liberated their town after two months of sheer hell of the DPR. There's Vanya, who joined the class last year after his parents fled the city of Donetsk. He misses his old apartment in the city center but now he suspects his building is just rubble. And those are just the kids from refugee families. Then we have Vlada, whose father was a lawyer and one of the co-organizers and then a field commander of the Azov Battalion. He saw action near Donetsk airport in the village of Piski. Then in Shirokino near Mariupol, Vlada is an orphan. 
Nadia's father is an explosives expert. She doesn't want to talk about where he's stationed, except that he received training in Yavorif, Lviv Oblast. Nadia's father clears mines in the ATO. Olya's father was a medic on the Maidan. He volunteered for service in the army immediately after Yanukovych's flight. His unit liberated Popazna and Lysychansk, Luhansk Oblast. He was taken prisoner by Russian regulars in August 2014 during the Battle of Ilovaisk, spent several weeks in a Donetsk basement, and was then released in a prisoner exchange in October. He returned to the front in 2015 as a volunteer medic. Our son's class is no different from the others in our school. Our middle daughter, grade three, has three classmates whose fathers are currently at the front. My wife met two others during a recent parents' meeting. Both were decommissioned last year. Both have missing limbs. Today's commemorative ceremony, nominally in remembrance of the Heaven's Hundred, but in fact honoring all of Ukraine's freedom fighters, took place in the open area at the entrance of our school, the vestibule. It was moving. The kids sang the Ukrainian anthem, they placed flowers to Plekhanov's monument. They hummed the Maidan funeral chant, Pliva Katja, the duckling swims. The texts they recited boiled down to one simple message, no matter what we will overcome. Life is hard, and death is always just around the corner, but our cause is just, and our heroes never die. Words on paper can't convey the emotions. The kids mean it. As a social scientist, I can't avoid noting a fascinating moment of identity construction that I witnessed today. The vestibule of our school is home to two gold busts of heroes of the Soviet Union. Both were students of the school. Both died during World War II. Between the two busts, the plaque on the wall lists the names of 31 individuals under the heading, teachers and students of this school who were killed in battle for the freedom and independence of their Soviet motherland. This plaque was the backdrop for our son's class during today's remembrance ceremony. For some reason, the blue and yellow flag next to this plaque and the flowers and candle beneath the monument to Plakhanov and the kids' blue and yellow drawings of Heaven's Hundred symbolism, none of it clashed with the hammer and sickle on the plaque behind them. In fact, somehow, the seemingly contradictory historical representations seemed to complement each other. The names on the Soviet plaque reflect the ethnic makeup of Podil district in Kiev. Mandrik, Kimmelblatt, Banvelman, Pavlovsky, Zinakorov, Pelan, Livshitz, Tchaikovsky. No different today, really. Families speak Ukrainian, Russian, Hebrew at home, while they learn English, French, and German at school. The language in the schoolyard is a mixture, Serzhik, that is becoming increasingly Ukrainian with every passing year. Today, the symbolism on the walls, whether of Soviet or of Maidan origin, was all Ukrainian without contradiction. Most importantly, the faces of the kids, 
These were all Ukrainian. The trident, the flag, the language, the songs. These are now elements of their identity that each has personally suffered for. As adults, they will not give them up lightly. The faces of the kids I saw today, even those whose eyes filled with tears as they spoke of their fathers, looked forward, not backward. They honored their ancestors, whatever their ethnicity or historical uniform, for having defended their homeland. And for these kids, Russia is now their lifelong enemy. I guess we should thank Mr. Putin for that. But I prefer to thank the fathers of our children's classmates. Heroes, each of them. Plakhanov's legacy lives on. This nation is indestructible. This book is about the indestructible Ukrainian nation. It is about a people transformed through revolution and about the broader civilizational consequences of those events. Experiencing Maidan firsthand provided me with what social scientists call thick data. And it would be wrong to duck the opportunity to use this data to engage in scholarly theoretical debates that pervade my field of study. I do so on several occasions in the text. On the other hand, I am very conscious of the fact that my account of Ukraine's revolution of dignity lacks academic distance. I simply cannot detach myself from my own experiences of both protest and war, nor can I claim neutrality with respect to those whose limbs, eyes, organs, and lives were lost defending their, my, country against invaders. My academic contribution is therefore of necessity biased. But this book is not intended to be a purely academic text. First and foremost, I seek to relay the highly personalized, yet social, objectively dangerous, yet engendering feelings of complete safety, emotionally charged, yet intellectually stimulating events that I lived through during the Maidan protests and during subsequent months of war with Russia. I seek to demonstrate both the excitement of a successful popular uprising, passionate elation, and the experience of feeling threatened by violence, intense fear resulting from war. However, in addition to personal reflections, this book also seeks to contribute to social science thinking about revolutions, human progress, modernity and post-modernity, and about the ideational versus material roots of social change. I seek to dispel the numerous stereotypes about Ukraine that have been purposefully or Inadvertently, I make no judgment as to motives, perpetrated by both journalists and academics. These include the myth, according to which the Kremlin's military aggression in Crimea and the Donbass was somehow justified by the threat to Russia posed by NATO's eastward expansion a decade earlier. A word of warning, if you believe the change of political regime in Kiev, that resulted from the Maidan protests in 2013-14 to 14 to have been a fascist coup, or that Russia did not engage in an unprovoked invasion of the sovereign territory of Ukraine in February 2014, or that the Kremlin did not foster continuous war in the Donbass thereafter, you will not enjoy this book. 
From this brief preface, the listener will have concluded that the author is highly opinionated. Such an appraisal is accurate, but I assume a degree of empathy on the part of the listener. I will make every effort to back up my opinions with facts and take full personal responsibility for any errors or misconceptions that may have creeped into the text because of my biases. Chapter 1, Introduction In late 2013 and early 2014, over multiple weeks in sub-zero temperatures, hundreds of thousands of protesters in Kiev and in other cities across Ukraine displayed amazing levels of civic activism, restraint, self-organization, and spontaneous cooperation while demonstrating their individual and collective displeasure with their rulers. Their protest achieved its primary goal, the ouster of President Viktor Yanukovych, but victory came at enormous cost. Three months of continuous blockade of the central area of Ukraine's capital and a climax during which over 100 civilians were gunned down by riot police and snipers. Over subsequent months during Russia's invasion and subsequent war with Ukraine, tens of thousands more were injured or killed, and almost two million displaced from the country's eastern Donbass region. Approximately 1.6 million moved to other areas of Ukraine, the rest to Russia. The Crimean Peninsula, an autonomous region within the sovereign territory of Ukraine, was annexed by the Russian Federation in an illegal act that substantively undermined political stability on the European continent. The Russian armed forces then flexed their muscles in Syria with disastrous consequences for the people of Aleppo and repeatedly threatened the airspace of several NATO countries by the fifth anniversary of the start of the Maidan protests in Kiev, evidence of significant covert intervention by Kremlin-backed hackers in the 2016 U.S. presidential election process had become public, and Russia's use of an illegal nerve agent on U.K. soil had caused significant diplomatic tension with the West. Amid all the accusations and denials, the term post-truth came to epitomize the problems associated with analyzing global hybrid war. Maidan and the Russian invasion changed our world profoundly. This author's first-hand experience of the Ukrainian revolution, which included both protests in the capital and other centers, and war in the eastern Donbass region, is presented in the first half of this book where I offer a participant observer's perspective on events. As noted in the preface, for me, Maidan was an emotional place, a place of euphoria, sadness, fear, anger, solidarity, and pride. It was a place where I experienced humanity, where all was possible because there was we. It was also the place where I saw death for the first time, and it was the place where I witnessed what has been cogently called the birth of a nation. Then, after three months of protest in freezing temperatures, just as we thought victory was ours, war broke out. In 2014, Russia inserted troops into Ukraine, sparking a military conflict that continues to this day. 
Ukrainians throughout the world banded together in resistance, volunteering, giving, displaying patriotic defiance. And simultaneously, we worked hard to change the country internally, many by taking up formal roles in government, others by becoming engaged in civil society, others still by working to change everyday practices to reflect the activism and values that engendered Maidan. Revolutions are, by definition, complex. They usually involve violence, inevitably lead to circulation of a state's political elite, and sometimes, in the case of great revolutions, result in more fundamental social change than would be expected from momentary political upheaval. An analytical frame for understanding Ukraine's revolution of dignity a series of events that I contend constituted just such a great revolution, is expounded in the second half of the book. I am proud to have been part of these events and privileged to offer my interpretation of these processes from the perspective of a participant social scientist. Experiencing my Don and the War History books often present revolutions as abrupt events. In fact, revolutionary socio-political change, though rapid, takes time. The process involves elite circulation, restructuring of economic activities, reorientation of social relations, transformation of institutionalized ideas, norms, and practices. For our family, the Ukrainian Revolution began in late 2013, and in the years that followed, we experienced a roller coaster ride of emotions and life changing experiences. In the beginning, we commiserated with the students who had been savagely beaten by police in the early hours of the 30th of November 2013. Several had attended my lectures at KF Mohila Academy just a few days before. We joined the awestruck million of our fellow citizens who filled the streets of Kiev on December 1st and again on December 8th and many Sundays thereafter to show their displeasure at the brutality of the authorities. During those very early and heady days, in our hearts we knew the Yanukovych regime's days were numbered, but that confident belief did not always make the journey any easier. Temperatures dropped and the snow fell. Euro Maidan transformed into Maidan, with the Euro prefix becoming increasingly irrelevant to the protesters, although remaining a convenient label for Western journalists. We prepared for a drawn-out struggle. By mid-December, we had pushed back an attempt by the regime to disperse our protest camp by force. As the slogan on Maidan proclaimed, each of us was just one drop in an ocean, but together we were unstoppable. We celebrated the new year with several hundred thousand countrymen on KF's central square and many million more glued to television screens, singing Ukraine's national anthem in an act of defiance, emotional, peaceful, righteous protest. Then came the farcical assault on democratic norms when on the 16th of January 2014, a legislative majority in Ukraine's parliament, made up of Yanukovych-controlled MPs, 
violated all procedural norms and pushed through what we, Maidan activists and demonstrators, viewed as dictatorial laws. They banned public protest, the wearing of helmets and masks during demonstrations, road processions of more than five cars, essentially outlawing the Auto Maidan, see Chapter 3, and they legalized trials in absentia. The protesters' reaction was swift. Three days later, the country that had prided itself on being the only post-Soviet state that had avoided political violence during the two decades that followed the collapse of the USSR lost its innocence. Tires burned, Molotov cocktails flew, tear gas and bullets, first rubber and then real, went into play. Then came the first deaths in the city center, followed quickly by kidnappings and beatings on the outskirts of the capital. Hopes for a peaceful solution were raised when U.S. and European politicians became involved as brokers in negotiations between the Yanukovych regime and opposition politicians. But all that was dashed on the 18th to 20th of February, 2014. First, riot police and paid thugs attacked peaceful demonstrators near the parliament buildings. Then they attempted to clear Independence Square by force. And finally, snipers were deployed onto the rooftops of buildings in the city center. With pinpoint accuracy, their high-powered rifles targeted the necks, heads, and hearts of protesters armed with wooden shields, and in a few cases, shotguns or pneumatic pistols. On the 22nd of February, we thought the worst was over. The regime crumbled. We celebrated victory and simultaneously mourned the deaths of the Heaven's Hundred, Ukraine's now mythical heroes who sacrificed their lives during the climax of the Kiev phase of the Maidan protest. Meanwhile, Yanukovych fled, first from Kiev to Kharkiv and then to Donetsk, only to be extracted to Russia via Crimea on a vessel of the Russian Black Sea fleet. Little did we know or expect that even before the president's ouster, the Kremlin had already launched preparations for the seizure of Ukrainian territory and organization of its aggressive response to the victory of Maidan. The second half of the story of 2014 continued into 2015 and beyond. The massacre on Maidan was followed by the Russian military being called to action in Crimea. First, to support a self-proclaimed Crimean government established by a minority of elected local leaders, see Chapter 5, and later, to clear the peninsula of Ukrainian troops. On the 18th of March, 2014, the Russian Federation proclaimed Crimea to be a constituent part of its territory, that is, officially announced its annexation, thereby violating a fundamental principle of the international order, the inviolability of interstate borders. Western economic sanctions against the Russian Federation and political isolation of the Kremlin followed. As it happened, the Crimean affair turned out to be just the start of the Kremlin's anti-Maidan reaction. Within weeks, Russian special forces were again active in Ukraine, 
fostering armed conflict in Donetsk, Luhansk, Slovyansk, Mariupol, Olivka, Kramatorsk, and other towns in the Donbass region. There, during the spring of 2014, protesters egged on by Russian intelligence officers proclaimed the Donetsk and Luhansk People's Republics to be independent of Kiev. Russian troops and heavy artillery poured into the region, a fact that was documented by multiple social media sources and later confirmed by NATO. In July 2014, Ukrainian forces advancing against the separatists were repeatedly shelled from Russian territory. As if to dispel any doubts as to direct Russian involvement, on the 17th of July 2014, Malaysian Airlines Flight MH17, traveling from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur and overflying Donetsk Oblast at an altitude of over 10 kilometers, over 33,000 feet, was shot down by a Russian-manufactured high-tech Buk surface-to-air missile, killing all 298 passengers and crew on board. Five weeks later, as Ukrainian troops advanced on the crash site in a pincher movement, aimed at cutting off separatist fighters and Russian special forces lodged in the city of Donetsk from supply channels crossing the Russian-Ukrainian border. Russian army regulars crossed into Ukraine, northwest of Rostov-on-Don, to engage the Ukrainian army advancing in a northeasterly direction from Mariupol. The two sides met near the town of Ilovaisk with the professional Russian army inflicting massive casualties on its poorly trained and under-equipped Ukrainian volunteer adversaries. Scrambling to avoid further humiliation and territory loss, Ukrainian President Poroshenko traveled to Minsk, Belarus, to meet with his Russian counterpart in the presence of German Chancellor Angela Merkel and French President Francois Hollande. The meeting resulted in an agreement that came to be known as Minsk One, signed on the 5th of September 2014, which nominally instituted a ceasefire. But combat on the front lines died down just slightly, and for a very short time. By January 2015, hostilities had again intensified. The southern city of Mariupol was shelled by Russian multiple launch Grad rockets, Formerly liberated areas of the Donbass, including Donetsk Airport, were again occupied by Russian-backed separatist irregulars. Artillery barrages and renewed troop movements near the town of Dvaltseva foreshadowed another direct military engagement between Ukrainian forces and Russian regulars. In an attempt to halt a full-scale Russian invasion, a second round of high-level EU-brokered talks was held in Minsk in February 2015, leading to yet another peace accord, this time signed personally by the Russian, Ukrainian, and French presidents, and by the German Chancellor. Although few in Ukraine judged Minsk II to be any more permanent than Minsk I, the avoidance of full-scale invasion allowed Ukraine to strengthen its defenses mobilize, equip and organize its armed forces, and to access training and equipment from several NATO countries. Most importantly, a relative pause in hostilities 
allowed the country's leadership to shift attention to long-delayed domestic problems. Reform of the police, state procurement, higher education, and energy sectors followed. Judicial reform stalled, a fact that resulted in a number of Yanukovych-era officials avoiding prosecution. Most fled to Russia after having been granted bail or after having received warning of their impending arrest. But on the positive side, relative peace brought much-needed economic reform and a reorientation of Ukraine's exports from east to west. Economic growth was finally restored in 2017, after three years of catastrophic decline. The Minsk II peace agreement may have reduced the intensity of war, but it did not lead to real peace. On the contrary, throughout 2015, news broadcasts reported one to three Ukrainian soldiers killed per day in artillery barrages across the line of contact in the Donbass. An additional three to five were reported injured daily. By mid-2016, after six months of low-intensity conflict, 15 to 25 artillery incidents per day, fighting again intensified, daily artillery incidents numbering up to 100. Russia massed troops and equipment along the Ukrainian border, poured massive reinforcements, armor, tanks, artillery personnel, into the Donbass. Renewed invasion was somehow avoided. Nominal peace along the contact line, now fortified by a network of trenches, continued to be maintained throughout 2017 to 2018. But with both sides experiencing casualties from regular artillery and small arms skirmishes. A time of writing, the official death toll during four years of war between Russia and Ukraine from April 2014 onward, had topped 10,000. Continued shelling along the contact line left no doubt that the death toll would continue to rise over subsequent months. In 2014-15, Putin's plan apparently was to split Ukraine into two by establishing Novorossia on the territory of its eight eastern and southern oblasts, regions, However, despite enormous resources poured into propaganda in the region and worldwide, the Kremlin's portrayal of the Kiev-based revolutionaries as representing a fascist junta convinced far too few to matter. A majority of Ukraine's ethnic Russians and Russian-speaking Ukrainians did not identify with Russia, nor with the Russian world, Ruski Mir, civilizational project offered by the Kremlin. Instead, throughout Ukraine's southeast, ordinary citizens and regional elites mobilized an astonishingly effective line of defense against Moscow's subversive activities. Tens of thousands of volunteers from across the country, a majority of whom were Russian speakers, mobilized spontaneously and volunteered to fight against what were widely perceived as the forces of a foreign invader. In the end, Ukraine's territorial loss due to Crimea's annexation and the ongoing war in the Donbass amounted to a mere 7%. Agency on the Frontier of Europe 
This book is not about the roots of Russian aggression in Ukraine, nor is it about the geopolitics of the region. Although these topics are touched upon, this book is primarily about the domestic transformation of Ukrainian society through what has come to be known as the Revolution of Dignity. I adopt an agent-centered analytical approach. In contrast to those who would interpret the Maidan protest and the subsequent Russian-Ukrainian war as manifestations of a geopolitical conflict between Russia and the West, EU, NATO, G7, etc. I argue that understanding events in Ukraine during and after the Maidan protests requires appreciation of the role of local agents. For them, Maidan and war in the Donbass represented ideational struggles related to Ukraine per se. Although, their revolution catalyzed broader civilizational change that has had, and I contend will continue to have, global consequences for the protesters, volunteers, and activists, and indeed for the population as a whole. The regional and or global significance of Ukraine's political struggles and the fundamental importance of their country in the broader European context were at best a secondary concern. On the other hand, as sociologist Michael Kimmel has pointed out, an analysis of revolution, however morally compelling, must rest on more than the ideational objectives of the participants. This advice is taken seriously in the chapters that follow. Understanding Ukraine's revolution of dignity requires a process perspective that admits both domestic agency and multidimensionality. The values, interests, and actions of the protagonist are important to constructing an accurate narrative of the course of events of Ukraine's revolution, but this effort behooves both local and international contextualization. In other words, elites matter, geopolitics matters, grassroots agents matter, but what matters most are the historically situated ideas that unite and or divide all of the above. During periods of relative stability, these ideas define the institutions of a given social system, or, at a macro level, civilization. They infuse legitimacy into everyday social practices, defining the proper forms of social interaction, the acceptability of political and economic structures, the validity of decision-making procedures, etc. But when the prevailing ideas underpinning order in a society come into question, political and social upheaval commonly ensues. When new ideas regarding the proper form of organization of society are both the catalyst and ultimate product of a cataclysmic event, social scientists refer to such an occurrence as a great revolution. In the mid-18th century, at the start of the historical process that has come to be known as the civilizational shift to modernity, few would have predicted that the epicenter of this great revolutionary transition would be the backwater colonies that later became the United States. Arguably, it was the civilizational marginality of the American revolutionaries that facilitated their substantive contribution to the development of social institutions, 
philosophical senses and identity constructs that shaped the evolution of what has come to be known as the West. Frontier status was an advantage. I contend that in the early 21st century, the epicenter of an analogous civilizational discontinuity, both geopolitical and ideational, was located not in the center of Europe, nor in North America, but on the periphery of Western civilization, in a frontier country on the eastern fringes of the EU, where one would hardly expect changes of such magnitude to occur. European historiography is remarkably Western-oriented. The region east of the border of the former USSR is studied as a place of long military campaigns. For example, Napoleon, Hitler, and heinous crimes against humanity. For example, Holocaust, Holodomo, but not one where events of civilizational significance for the rest of Europe are meant to occur. Thus, according to the narrative espoused by many European and North American observers of global politics, Ukraine's Maidan represented a kind of modern equivalent of the assassination of Crown Prince Ferdinand of Austria prior to the start of the First World War. In the context of the emergence of very real dangers to the West posed by a resurgent and or unstable Russia, Kiev, the focal point of the Ukrainian revolution, was a kind of modern Sarajevo, significant for its catalytical effect on subsequent events, but marginal as a determinant of global outcomes. This perspective misses the mark. As in the American case almost 250 years before, the protagonists of Ukraine's revolution generated ideational and especially discursive novelty that could only have been created and articulated on the margin of European civilization. This novelty, I argue, referenced the next stage of development of modernity as a civilizational project, but also contradicted several of the foundational principles of the EU. For example, reduction of the importance of nation as a political identity marker, hegemonic institution of social market policies. At the height of the protests, and especially during the most challenging periods of the war with Russia, many Ukrainians believed themselves to be defending, or even advancing, European civilization. French playwright and philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy Speaking from the Maidan stage on the 9th of February 2014, said as much. The real Europe is here, and Kiev is the continent's capital. Belief in the broader significance of the social phenomenon Levy witnessed was shared by those who heard him on Kiev's Independence Square that day. Sadly, in later months, the idealistic message became overshadowed by the geopolitical territorial separatist narrative inherent to the military conflict that followed. The Ukrainian revolutionaries' radical break with the Russian world was perceived as a correction of the flow of history and a return to Europe. Ukraine's political and economic disassociation from its former metropole in Moscow was framed as a civilizational choice 